Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic wear on Instagram at Picnic wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No flight back vintage, bringing fun new life to old things always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle.
Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in Western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of May, St. Evans is supporting Labor Behind the Label, an anti-sweatshop campaign working to improve conditions and empower workers in the global garment industry. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? 
Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that just is not a fan of shoulder pads. <laughs> I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 80. And as I mentioned in our previous episode, Labor Month is continuing into June. Why? Well, because one, I just can't get enough of it. And two, and this one's way more important, I just don't think we've covered everything I want to discuss. So we're going to continue. I guess we're not having hashtag labor month. We're having hashtag labor months. Emphasis on this. (laughs) So I'll be sharing more stories and conversations about work throughout June. Today's special guest is Jenny, a.k.a. the estate sale queen, a.k.a. the woman behind Late to the Party. And she's here to take us on a pop culture stroll down memory lane as we revisit some of the iconic working women and their clothing of film and television. And before that, I have two hotline messages. One's from Selena Sanders and the other from Gabriella Antonis. This It's going to be an awesome episode. (laughs) So let's just jump right in. Our first message today comes from Selena Sanders, and she's had an experience recently that is just, it's just becoming far too common. So let's take a listen. Hello, Amanda and the Clothes Horse community. It's your friend Selena, Selena Sanders. I know it's been a while since I called in, but I'm here. I'm always here listening. Um, And I thought it would be appropriate to call today because, um, you know, I know that you guys were talking about disappointment in general in the fashion industry and that we should just basically accept it and get used to it. Well, I've been in the industry for a long time, as you know, and I feel like I've seen most of everything, but I have never had the position of having my own little brand and kind of doing things in the very unlikely ways, basically anti-establishment. And um, what happened was, basically, there was this website several actually but it started out with one website where they literally a website just took my images uh, off of Instagram and they just decided that they were going to make a store out of my pictures in addition to taking images from other small and indie designers I know that this is not the first time it's happened Um, it's not an unusual case But what happened was I reported it to Instagram because the ads were targeting my followers and my customers. It actually even targeted me. So I was just really shocked to see my images collaged into this idea that you can buy the item now 
you can purchase it now and they will ship it within 24 hours. The prices are literally like for a top, it's like $36 slashed down to $24. For dresses, it's like $69 slashed to $49. They're 100% polyester. And if you buy now and you spend over $69, you'll get free shipping. So, of course... Um, all my followers who recognize my work immediately asked me if I was collaborating with this website. And the answer, of course, is not. I'm not. Because if I am to collaborate with anybody, there's no way that the prices would be that low. Number one, because we know that if it's that low, nobody's getting paid or somebody's not getting paid. Number two, 100% polyester. Like, that's ridiculous. You know, I w- you would never get the same hand and feel and the fact that it's plastic is something that I would never condone a reproduction of my work and then it's just like really made me sad because I knew that within our community maybe we're a lot more keen as to sniffing out a scam but the majority of people and consumers out there may not know so it's very easy to lure people and scamming them into buying product Um, And on top of that, the thing that really makes me so very sad is I reported this website for intellectual property infringement under Instagram's, you know, kind of report and fraud, um, like little button that you can submit. And of course, I got a response back saying, oh, it doesn't go against our policy. So no, we're not going to take it down. And this is just it makes my blood boil because the algorithm obviously as we all know it's kind of like one of those things where we don't have a choice as small businesses because we rely heavily on these social media platforms to advertise our work but at the same time they also know that if they're receiving money from a fake account even if it's fake and fraudulent the fact that they're receiving ad money from them that's more important to them sometimes i feel than them protecting their creators and basically the people that provide the amazing content that's on this, these platforms that actually attract people to come and use the platform so there's that one and then <laughs> i just so happen to have a contact directly at instagram and facebook because i've worked with them before off of paid partnerships and when i basically reached out to my contacts real people that work there a lot of them tell me that their hands are tied it's not really their department there's not really a person to talk to they feel bad for me but at the same time they don't really know what to do i mean they can send out like a report for me on my behalf meaning they could report it for me but it doesn't mean that they're going to be able to help me in a way that it should be meaningful so anyway a month later four more fraudulent websites popped up. And with the four different fraudulent websites, I had a few followers and some family members digging in and they were able to find that a lot of these companies hide behind addresses in Paris or other places that may feel like it's such an, you know, kind of like a um, aspirational country that these places are coming from. But then when they dig deeper, it's basically these shady companies who knows where they are. And um, when you look at the reviews, a lot of the times people buy product and give them money to the to 
this website and number one it's either they don't get anything at all in return number two they could be getting a product but nothing remotely close to like what they ordered so basically um they could buy a dress and then they could get a t-shirt or they could get a product if this company tried you know it's a reproduction but it's literally there's nothing even similar to it. Maybe the color scheme is the same. It's like a sad attempt to replicate an item. Um, so again, like I said, it's not just me that this is happening to. It's been happening for a while. Many, many years this has happened. But I feel like it's more rampant now. It's kind of like the Wild West of, um, you know, kind of the scam of the internet and... I honestly feel like I'm caught in this place where it's like I just have to rely on my followers to help report it and then hoping and crossing my fingers that it will be taken down. But but the time that happens, another one pops up. So it's like whack-a-mole, basically. Um, and for me personally, it's been really, really hard to get a handle of this because, as you know, it's just mainly me. I finally hired... a an extra hand in my design team to help me out. But we are basically taking more time in addressing this and answering our followers instead of actually creating clothing and actually making products. So our production and our productivity has really suffered from addressing all of these. Um, and it's basically a loose-loose situation, right? Um, and on top of that, I don't ever want to be caught in this um sort of perception that somebody ends up buying it from this website and then they find me and then they probably think I'm affiliated with this website and I'm just really you know I don't ever want people to think that I am complacent with this sort of scam I know that that seems far-fetched and I know that people may seem like oh that's not going to happen but at the end of the day it's just a violating abuse and use of my work that um do i just have to accept it and say this is part of the industry like and part of me feels like i shouldn't accept this and something has to be done um and the only thing that i know that could be done wishful thinking is that facebook instagram google whoever these big bohemian platforms are basically harboring and accepting ad money that they should screen these companies and ask the basic question do you have permission to use these images that you're using for these ads like why can't they do that as a simple rule and you know i don't know what the answer is and um i'm kind of at this space where if this continues to happen i'm gonna have to figure out a way to number one spread the word but also maybe reach out to people who may write up about this um i just recently listened to the daily and they had an episode about these scam calls coming from india basically calling elderly and weak and vulnerable people in america to give up their social security and their bank account info and they basically hack into their computers and it was the most interesting and really kind of educational episode i've ever heard um because it's just i love all the consumer advocacy stories that are out there and then the changes that happen um and I feel like this would be a really amazing story to cover. And again, like I said, it doesn't happen to me. 
it's happened not just to me i mean it happens to a lot of people and or indie makers designers not even just in the apparel industry but it could be in kids toys home goods i mean it's rampant um so anyway i just wanted to share my experience with um your listeners i want you all to just be aware of these scams if you see beautiful images and you already can can tell that the price is sort of like really i'm gonna get that for this much you gotta question it you know and not only that whenever there's a new website that pops up read the reviews do your due diligence and research. I know that a lot of us sometimes, sometimes we're just trained to want a deal and we are just trained to want a sale. And I understand that. I've been in that position before where I just like really, where I just really want a deal. And that's the problem with some of these scam sites. They understand the way the American consumption and how we've been, um, really trained to want a deal and so they're feeding into that need but anyway i just wanted to say thank you for taking the time to listening to my call Um, again if you see these sites pop up just take the time your help is really needed if you can help us report it again i've laid out all the different reasons why reporting it's probably the only avenue i have now to combat this and if any of your listeners have an idea as to what else we can do please let me know i do want to say i have an ip lawyer and we both decided that it's just too much money effort and time to go after websites like this that hide behind you know kind of outside of the united states they have different rules and it's really hard to go after them we could easily send a cease and deceased letter but at the end of the day nobody's paying attention to that or listening to that they're so blatant that they probably will just ignore it you know so again do we get used to it or do we do something about it I really appreciate again your time. Thank you so much, Amanda. And I love you guys all. Bye. So I've been becoming more and more aware of all of these. I mean, I wish I had a better term for them, but these like knockoff sites. Someone needs to coin a better term for sure. I'm open to suggestions. We know that places like Shein and Alibaba are filled with direct knockoffs of both small makers and big brands. I mean, to be honest, all the fast fashion websites are filled with these direct knockoffs. But in most cases, even when you order from Shein, you will actually receive something when you make a purchase. Yes, it's probably going to be very, very, like all caps, very disappointing because after all, most of these items are actually copied from a photo of the original item. Like it's not even like a lot of the fast fashion brands will at least go buy that item and copy it, which not that I'm defending that technique either, but it does result in a more accurate copy. But when you're just copying a photo, things do tend to get lost in translation. (laughs) If you want to learn more about Shein and its ilk, I recommend you check out the mini-sode I did about those brands last year, and it's pretty close to the beginning. So just scroll all the way down on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and you'll get there. But recently, this rash of these other knockoff websites have popped up. I stumbled across one earlier this year that was knocking off for at least 
pretending to sell knockoffs of a wide spectrum of brands and makers, including Ose Duro, New Works, and Street and Saddle. So many more. And it's it's so weird. Like these sites had 100% stolen the photos and the copy, like that, what's written about these products on their original website from the brand's actual websites. Via a very exciting day in Instagram stories, enough of us banded together to have Shopify pull down that specific website. I swear, that's the only one of the tech companies that will back up and support makers and small businesses. I assume that it is highly unlikely that should you fall for any of these knockoff sites, that you will actually receive anything. And if you do somehow receive something, it will be wildly different than the styles shown in the photos, which were, of course, stolen from another maker or designer. I have an embarrassing story for you of a way that I was scammed early in the pandemic, and it involves, of all things, ball jars. So you might not be aware of this, but for most of the pandemic, there has been a shortage of ball jars, the kinds of jars with the lids and the rings that people use for canning. And here in my house, we use them to store all of our dry goods. We try to be as zero waste as possible. So I buy a lot of stuff in bulk. I also use them to store cooked food and pickles that I make and all kinds of stuff. You know, I'm always up to something around here. And we needed some more jars because we were at home all the time and I was cooking even more and we needed more storage, etc. So I went online, I typed ball jars into Google and I went to a site that was like balljars.com. All of the graphics, all the information seemed very on the up and up. The pricing Unlike the stuff that Selena is talking about, it was in line with how much I would pay for those jars normally. It wasn't like a super hot deal and it wasn't super inflated. So I ordered two or three cases of jars, which would be like, you know, 12 jars a piece, you know, paid for the shipping, did all that stuff and waited. Literally the next day, I was listening to NPR in my kitchen. It was weekend edition. And a story came on about how there had been this shortage of jars and all the drama it was creating, the lengths that people were going to to get these jars. And then they talked about how these sites had popped off that popped up that were fraudulently selling jars. Like they weren't, they were scamming people out of their money. No one was going to receive a jar. And I was like, are you kidding me? So... Fortunately, for some reason, I don't know why, when I ordered these jars, I paid with PayPal. Actually, I do know why I paid with PayPal, because in general, I feel a lot more protected, although I guess if I paid with my American Express, I would be too, but PayPal just always feels safer to me, right? So I paid with PayPal, and when I went in to look at my confirmation email, I realized that the email address that my PayPal had transferred the money to was a large assortment of consonants and numbers. That's right. It was in no way related to the company that makes ball jars. <laughs> so I knew I'd been scammed, but I knew that I couldn't file a claim until I did or did not receive something. You know, I read all the language and I had to wait. And so wouldn't you know, a month later, I receive a package from China and there's one jar inside it. Now, remember, I ordered 
three cases, so 36 jars. And I received one jar that was not a ball jar. It was just a jar. It didn't even have the like ring kind of lid. And I immediately went to PayPal and filed a claim and, you know, got my money back. And it was very cut and dried. By that point, the day that I received those jars and filed the claim on PayPal, the website was already gone. Like I couldn't even send a link to it anymore. It was just it was just gone. I mean, like I said, PayPal gave me my money back right away. But I think the moral of the story is that there are a lot of people out there looking to cash in on our need to have stuff, right? And it's really important that we be educated consumers about that. So let's talk about what you should do when you encounter something that seems too cheap to be true or just too unlikely to be true. Because using the jars as an example, I mean, isn't it wild that people decided to cash in on fraudulent jars? I guess it's not because this is the world we live in. But if I had heard that NPR story one day earlier about jars being scarce, fraudulent jars, I would have known immediately that this website wasn't real because I would have known that the company balljars.com or whatever I was buying from wouldn't have any inventory, right? Because they were scarce. Anyway, use all of the information and tools at your disposal when you encounter something like this that just seems off. First off, do a reverse image search using Google because this will always take you to the real maker site. Remember that site I was talking about earlier that we had pulled down a few months ago from Shopify? I literally screenshotted a bunch of photos and Google image searched them and found all the designers and reached out to them. You can do this if you've never done this before, which you may not have because maybe you're not like me and you're constantly trying to debunk catfishing. (laughs) But if you haven't, it's okay. It's very easy. You go to images.google.com. You click on the little camera button and you upload a screenshot of a photo of the clothing or other item that you're being offered on this website. Next, definitely notify the maker that their work is being stolen. It's important that the makers know so they can tell their customers, etc. But as Selena mentioned, there's very little recourse for brands here because the true identities of the people behind these sites are often extremely hidden. And it's sort of like a game of whack-a-mole because another one will pop up in its place. So as Selena pointed out, like why spend the money to have lawyers draft up cease and desist letters? Because these brands don't care if they receive a threatening letter or not. Often the goal is to cash in as fast as possible and then disappear if necessary. Next, if this website has a Shopify platform, and you'll know this because on the bottom of the homepage, you'll see powered by Shopify, report them to Shopify. And I'll include a link in the show notes for reporting knockoff sites to Shopify. When you fill out that form, you'll choose intellectual property as the issue you're reporting. So once again, I feel like Shopify actually supports the small businesses on its site as much as it can and still be a highly profitable company, you know? If you were initially introduced to the knockoff site by Instagram or Facebook, which odds are high that you were, you know, I 
had not seen any of these knockoffs of Selena's stuff until I saw her post on Instagram and liked it. And I swear, the algorithm realizes that I saw that, that I like Selena, whatever else. And now I'm getting bombarded with ads on Facebook, which, you know, owns Instagram and a little bit on Instagram, but like nonstop ads for these knockoffs of Selena's product. And I just keep reporting them. You know, it feels like we're all just one tiny voice. But if enough of us report someone, that voice gets louder and actually has power. And I know this all seems like work. Reverse image search, reporting people, blah, blah, blah. Why? It seems unfair, right? But doing the right thing is work. Standing up for others is work. Building a better, more fair world. Yep, you guessed it. It's work. And we're here to do it. We cannot accept that the world is just fundamentally unfair, that we should expect to be scammed, that it's totally just what it is that designers get knocked off, and that we should take the hottest deal that comes our way because everything else about life is just so fundamentally unfair. Can't we have that one good thing? No, we have to do the work. We must support others in our community, and that includes all of the small businesses like Selena that are actually doing things the right way. That's how we turn the current paradigm of profits over people upside down. What's upside down? People over profits. What a wild idea. I know. I'm really blowing your mind right now. (laughs) But this is how we get there. And I believe, and trust me, I'm a very realistic person. I'm the person you come to with a plan and I poke the holes into it because that's just how my brain works. I believe that we can change the world if we all work together and that means doing the work together. Thank you so much for sharing your story, Selena. You know our community has got your back. Okay, next we have a message from Gabriella Antonis. We're getting all the regulars in on this episode. And I'll tell you that Gabriella calls out an event that has already happened in her call. Unfortunately, there wasn't an episode the first few days of Labor Month in May. And so the event was already passed by the time the first episode came. So anyway, I moved it to this episode. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't uh, take her advice and check out the boutique that she's calling out. So anyway, let's listen to Gabriella's message. Hi, Amanda and Close Horse listeners. This is Gabriella Antonis. And this message is for Labor Month, which I'm very excited about. I've been thinking about sending this message and just wanted to wait until I could process everything that's going on in order to share my experience with a particular segment of fashion industry labor without sounding like a crazy person. And Amanda's article, All Tightrope, No Net, on the clotheshorse.world blog is what gave me the courage and really pushed me over the edge because I relate so deeply to the story and the $24 thing. Um, I highly recommend you hit up the blog and read that article. 
but I have such strong parallels with Amanda. I know she shared on the pod before that she worried all the time because of a real life experience of her being injured, uh, breaking her jaw, not having enough money to get it wired shut and how that affected her. And that literally something similar has happened to me too. Um, when I was living in Philly and I was a server at Hard Rock Cafe while in school and doing other things. I was biking to work and broke my elbow. This lady was looking down on her phone and texting and I was trying to go through a yellow light and I couldn't work for three months and I was too stupid to apply for unemployment because I had never applied for it before and didn't know anything about it. So I couldn't work for three months and I also had to move from one three-story walk up with a broken elbow to another that's neither here nor there other things have happened like my house burning down things happen all the time when you're poor that set you back even though you can be doing all the right things and you're in that place again where oh my god I only have $24 and so we can vow to never be in that place again but when you're born into a lower socioeconomic place in life that's how you always think it's why I thought of becoming an art teacher as a safe route instead of going to school for fashion design first because I thought well there'll always be teachers even though I knew that everyone was coming to cut the arts and programs like that are fun like HUMEC so I'm calling to talk about today that was the context what I'm calling to talk about is my labor of okay I've graduated I've relocated myself to a city with a good community for the arts and the endeavors that I want to do as fashion designer and visual artist, but also has a good restaurant industry. Why is that? Because I have to be a bartender and a server to feed the capitalist beasts of my high bills and also surviving. I want to be able to save money. If I don't have anything saved, I can't do things like take off work to do a pop-up, which I'm doing on the 1st and 2nd of May. I highly recommend you follow Slow Down NOLA, which is a really amazing boutique. And they let artists like me put pieces in their store on consignment and have pop-ups outside. But it's just thinking about it, which I am totally committed to do and excited about because of the exposure I want to meet other people in the community, walking up and down Magazine Street. But it takes money to even do that because I have to feel comfortable enough to have my bills paid to take off the two days from work, which I did. I had my rent paid before the first, which is amazing. Hasn't happened to me. Didn't happen to me in Baltimore. Anyway, Then I had to, thank God my old roommate gave me a card table. So I didn't have to buy a table. I have chairs. I have a sign that says my namesake brand from doing another pop-up before. But the other pop-ups I've done have just, I sold fabric. I sold my paintings. I didn't have to sit here, which I've been doing for the last three days. This is where the free labor comes in. Sewing in labels. To everything I made while I was in school. For this pop-up, I'm selling vintage that I've been collecting over my whole life and things that I've made. I'm not even saying I'm taking the time to make anything from scratch. I'm talking sewing a label that says my namesake brand, Gabrielle Antonis, the size, 
That's the second label. Third is a care label. So I had to buy all those labels. I also had to buy a steamer. I also had to hit up Facebook Marketplace and buy a rack. Oh, and then guess what? It's going to rain. So I had to go buy a tent. The cheapest one was at Walmart, which I hate. So I felt bad about doing that. So these are just all things that are my labor. That is a labor of love that I'm doing just to pursue my career and if I didn't have the restaurant job I wouldn't be able to do it and that's clear to me but part of my anxiety before moving here was that I didn't want to have to do the restaurant job because I didn't want to have to deal with other people and the drama and the best part is obviously getting cash every day but I it was it was much nicer being my own boss and not being beholden to anyone with what I was doing before I got here in Baltimore. Um, that's pretty much it. I wanted to point that out. I'm not trying to complain, but it's, it's unseen labor just to do these things, just to put yourself out there. And I'm going to keep doing it. Um, I'm going to keep doing pop-ups. I'm going to keep doing freelance clients. And hopefully one day I hope to have enough in the bank where I don't have to do any more restaurant jobs or at least can take a break from it. So thank you for listening. I'm so excited to hear everyone else's stories for Labor Month. And hey, if you're in New Orleans, I'm doing a pop-up at Slow Down NOLA on May 1st and 2nd. I don't know if this message will make it in that episode in time, but either way, you know, I highly recommend you supporting the businesses that care about ethical fashion, slow fashion, and workers' rights like Annie Lou does of Slow Down NOLA. And thank you, Amanda. Have a great day. Bye. Let's talk about unpaid labor. As in the work we're all doing every single day as part of trying to build our own business, care for ourselves and our family, cooking, cleaning, errands, you name it. I don't know about you, but I also do a lot of weeding and filling of bird feeders and lawn mowing, and it's all unpaid. Well, according to a study by Oxfam in 2019, the unpaid labor done by all of the women in the world, all of them, exceeded $10.9 trillion if all of those women were paid their nation's minimum wage. This number, which is staggering to say the least, exceeds the combined revenue of the 50 largest companies on 2019's Fortune Global 500 list, including such bangers as Walmart, Apple, and Amazon. Now, before I continue, I'm just going to add that all of the large-scale global research into gender, work, and unpaid labor has been conducted as if gender were a binary of women and men, with no allowances for the full spectrum of gender. So, while I am aware that we live in a non-binary world, those doing this kind of research seem to either disagree or be willfully ignorant. So unfortunately, for the rest of the segment, I am going to be speaking about women and men. But I want you to know that I am aware that that is not an accurate reflection of the world. But it's the research I have at my fingertips right now. 
In the United States, women perform an average of four hours of unpaid work per day, while men do two and a half hours. I just going to tell you that I really thought the disparity was going to be even bigger based on conversations I've had with my friends and observations I've made over the years, but there you go. And that is right in the middle when compared to other countries. India has the largest gap where women spend about six hours a day engaged in unpaid labor. This does not include any sort of wage theft that they may be experiencing, say, in the textile industry. We're talking primarily the work they're doing at home. Indian men spent a mere 52 minutes. I mean, that's that's just frustrating. That makes me want to go fight someone. <laughs> the smallest divides are found in Sweden, Denmark, and Norway. Why? Because the social safety net there provides child care and elder care. That's a big deal. Back in 1965, when the government for the first time ever began keeping track of the amount of unpaid labor men and women were doing, American women did almost all of the unpaid work in the home. And that that probably doesn't surprise you. So yes, the gender gap in unpaid labor has narrowed considerably here in the United States, but women still perform a disproportionate amount of unpaid work and they do that on top of their full-time jobs. I can tell you when I was the breadwinner in my household, it was just 14 months ago, I did all the cooking, the cleaning, the laundry, the pet care, grocery shopping. I did all of the remembering of birthdays and paying the bills. Basically, all of the things that required remembering. According to the World Economic Forum's annual global gender gap report, the biggest gap between men and women in the world is the political empowerment gap, which is surely connected to the second biggest gap, which is economic participation and opportunity. Meaning, women don't get to be very involved in politics and public policy, which certainly affects the sort of fairness and opportunities women encounter when it comes to work, property, and money. Obviously, this inequality is even more extreme based on race, socioeconomic class, and where a woman lives in the world. Do you want to hear something really, really depressing? I can't stop thinking about it. So I've been reading the 371-page Global Gender Gap Report. There's a lot of charts. You know I love a chart. But this is on the cover page, and I just keep coming back to it and reading it again, and I just, I just have to share it with you. It says, quote, none of us will see gender parity in our lifetimes, and nor likely will many of our children. That's the sobering finding of the Global Gender Gap Report in 2020, which reveals that gender parity will not be attained for, are you ready for it? Are you ready? 99.5 years. I don't know why they just round that up to 100, but maybe 99.5 seems more precise. Anyway, unpaid labor is a major part of this economic gap for women. And we know 
that we're never going to get paid for all of that housework, childcare, and emotional labor, which is work. But the next time you're feeling like a failure or like you've never accomplished anything, I want you to take a moment to think about all of the stuff you do every day for yourself and those around you. It's unfortunate that we correlate our value as people with the size of our paycheck, but I can assure you the work you're doing is worth a very handsome wage, but don't expect to get it. On the topic of unpaid labor, let's talk about all of the work you're doing as a maker, creator, small business owner that you're not getting paid for. Let's look at Gabriella's example of sewing in labels, tracking down a tent, all of that. This stuff, these tasks, they take time and they have value. And you as a small business owner who's selling something, right, you should be baking that into your prices. For example, if you spend 10 hours a week doing stuff that isn't directly something that will be sold, but it helps you, you know, sell stuff and make a living, charge for it. I recommend keeping track of this kind of stuff for a week on your phone, in a Google Doc, in a notebook. I've been doing that recently and wow, I spend so much time creating social media content and responding to DMs, scanning vintage books, you know, with an actual scanner, not with my eyes, for Instagram content, tweeting, responding to emails, you name it. And that's all work, even if I do enjoy it. And I think that's another thing that you need to think about. We have we have so many messed up ideas about work and not work and Sometimes we feel like if we enjoy it, then it isn't work, but then we're told to follow our passions, but then it is work. But then if you follow your passions, then it'll never feel like a day of work. I hate that kind of stuff. It's all work. If it's part of your business, you should be getting paid for it. And I think it's a really great idea for a week, two weeks, whatever. Track what you're doing every day so you can start thinking when you plan out your pricing, your budget, Plan on paying yourself for that work and see how that affects your prices and make it affect your prices because none of us should be working for free and we already are every day. So why not minimize that, right? Let's pay ourselves when we can. Thank you so much for calling in, Gabriella. Since Labor Month is now multiple months, this is a great time for all of you who've been procrastinating, I know you have been, to send me your work stories. You can write me an email, you can call the Close Horse Hotline, or you can record a voice memo on your phone or computer and email it to me. All of that contact info is in the show notes. Just please, I ask, do not DM via Instagram because I will definitely lose your message. There is like no organization function there and your story is way too important to get lost in my DMs. All right, well, now it's time to jump right into our main event, some working women of pop culture nostalgia with the one and only estate sale queen, You know her, you love her, it's Jenny. Hey 
hey, Jenny, why don't you introduce yourself for everyone who somehow, I don't know how, they must live under a rock, doesn't know who you are. (laughs) Hi, everybody. It's Jenny. Um, Some of you know me as the Estate Sale Queen, a title that I cherish and hold very close to my heart. Um, And also for my brand, Late to the Party. I've been on the pod a bunch of times. Uh, I'm really excited to be here today. We're talking about... um, fashion and women in the workplace, um, kind of on the theme of labor month. Um, so Amanda and I are going to chat about some stuff. I'm also going to post, um, like I did last time when we talked, um, I'm going to post some images in my stories on Instagram that kind of like go along with the things we've talked about today. So if you're, if you like the segment and you want to like check out some visuals, you can head over to my Instagram, which is, um, late to the party people. And I'll have like a whole story reel about like everything we talked about today with some fun images. Yeah, and I'm excited about what we're going to talk about today because you ask all of your friends like, hey, do you have any suggestions for women working their fashion of like the 80s that really inspired you? And I was so excited about all the answers you got. Basically, the way I kind of was framing this around uh, in my head when we talked about it was like, you know, it's labor month. You guys are talking about a lot of like serious issues, which is awesome. And we kind of wanted to do more of like the fun pop culture side of it. And like, you know, like I kind of framed it as like thinking about like iconic women in the workforce. That was kind of like the general umbrella. I was sort of like thinking about this. So I had a ton of people come out, um, a lot, you know, some repeat stuff, but, um, some stuff I hadn't thought about too. So it was really fun to see everybody get really excited about like these like iconic, you know, uh, women that, that made an impression on them when they were younger or whatever. Um, so just to start off, I wanted to just do like a brief like highlight reel of kind of like the history of women's suits, which I kind mm-hmm. of found interesting. Some of the stuff I knew, you know, not going super deep into it, but just like a few highlights about like how we came to the 80s, like corporate power suit a little bit. Um, so basically, like the beginning of this was with Chanel, of course. Um, so she was really the first woman to create uh, suits for women. And this is coming out of, you know, um, first wave feminists, like early 20th century, post World War One, women are going back into like, or, or not going back, going into the workforce uh, for the first time, you know, in like male dominated uh, industries. So she really like, um, was the first one to make a suit for women that thought about the functionality of it too. So basically, the Chanel iconic suit that we all know today kind of started with tight little skirt, um, probably like a little bit below the knees, um, in wool, a collarless, like buttoned up jacket. Um, a lot of times it had like a braided trim or something like that and, um, metallic buttons. And it, and it kind of included like the traditional masculine elements, but kind of refined it a bit, made it a little bit more sophisticated and geared towards like a woman's figure. Um, and this is coming off like, you know, this was 19, 20 ish. So this is coming off like before this was like lots of fabric women were wearing and like corsets and shit like that. So this was like revolutionary, you know, that she made this suit. Um, she really wanted them to sort of like have this elegance, but also be able to like move around. And she thought about like the actual functionality of it, which was nice. Um, and it's funny that this is like a quote that I read, um, which I thought was kind of summed it up perfectly because she had uh, in contrast, uh, one of her, another designer, Christian Dior, who came on the scene around like 1947, um, who had these suits for women as well, but they were like cinched waist and like very feminine and like exaggerated (laughs) features, you know? And she had, was this famous quote where she said um, that Dior doesn't dress women. He upholsters them, which I thought was like, (laughs) 
perfect like shade, you know, it was oh, like yeah. sick burn. <laughs> yeah. Super bad burn. Like, cause you know, cause she really did. She was a woman and she thought about like moving around freely, which sounds to us now who like, you know, we're all in like stretch clothing, clothing and like in sweatpants from the pandemic. It's like, what? It's like, yeah, people, women really were constricted for a long time. So this is like, you know, a revolutionary thing. Um, another little side tip about Chanel, which I thought was interesting as like a, a textile nerd, um, is that she really revolutionized the use of tweed. Um, tweed was not a very glamorous fabric before she kind of got into it. And I think she was, she sort of discovered it in, um, when she was like over in Scotland, you know, where most of the manufacturing was happening. And so she really took this fabric, which was very like functional and she played with color and textures on it. And she really like led the way for this to be an attractive, desirable fabric for people. And a lot of designers, um, followed suit after that. So that I thought was interesting because, you know, now, um, you know, people, that was like, so it became such a classic fabric, but pre Chanel, no one really thought of it in that, in that way, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. Cause it does it. Uh, we think of it, I mean, even like now in buying, it would be like, Oh, that's expensive. You know? <laughs> Wait, well, we want like plastic and garbage fabrics. Right. I mean, that was like, to me, like, <laughs> I like to- that's a great description. Now we're into plastic and garbage. <laughs> fabrics. <laughs> well, I mean, that's one of my biggest things is like, you know, let alone construction of a garment, but like, the fat like who makes the fabric that's where it starts and like that that industry has changed so much and the fabric is just like fast you know and quick and Mm -hmm. the quality isn't there so i mean tweeds to me in my eyes is such a like oh it's really nice like good quality you know so (laughs) to see that where that came from yeah yeah interesting so moving along, uh, again, highlight reel here, Jackie O debuted her iconic Chanel suit in 1963. Um, and as we know, that was sort of like a, a, I mean, was iconic, but also became even more iconic just because of everything that surrounded that in history with the assassination of JFK. Um, so that was like, that kind of like really put that Chanel suit on the map too, because everybody saw it in America, right? I mean, that was such a like iconic moment in time, even just like, holy shit. So um that was in 63. And then you move into like the part of mid and late 60s where we have like Yves Saint Laurent and he's doing, he's kind of really like bringing more of the like um, sexuality and sort of that like second wave feminism's coming in. So like the sexual liberation. So he's kind of like up, that updated look was more of like a smoking tuxedo jacket, more sexual, um, that kind of, we kind of went into that sort of phase. Um, and then, you know, Chanel, uh, Coco Chanel died in 1971 and there was a few assistants that ran the line for her until, um, Carl Lagerfeld took over uh, while keeping his job at Fendi and he kind of moved that Chanel iconic Chanel suit like into the future, you know, um, and updated it, made it more, you know, like sex sexy and like put metallics and like mixed and match things over the years and sort of like move the company in that direction. Now we're in the seventies, uh, early mid seventies, um, you know, things are happening. Women are like into the workforce big time, you know, second wave feminism's popping off. We got, you know, corporations are on the rise. So, so um, there was a book in 1975 called Dress for Success. And the basic premise is just like, it was taught that in order for women to be more equal, they would need to step away from like their feminine clothing and things that accentuate yeah, their natural <laughs> features, AKA legs, butt, boobs, I guess, like we're talking. So nothing snug or like that made them look sexy, you know, which is like, as we know now, it's like so ridiculous. Um, but that was like the message they would, you know, they needed to like kind of like, 
not accentuate those natural features. Um, and so, you know, things like boxy blazers, oversized um, jackets, shoulder pads, things just became like a lot less like quote unquote feminine, you know? Um, and that sort of became the standard from like that nine to five office wear. I think that book really sort of was a little bit of a turning point of kind of the mainstream guide to like what you wear in the office to like be professional. Um, and then, you know, that kind of leads into our, as, as a long life, you know, life thrifter, um, the complicated relationship with the shoulder pad, as we all have experienced, <laughs> anyone who's been thrifting their life. So, you know, as late 70s, early, uh, early 80s, we get into like the shoulder pad and kind of that 80s sort of power dressing. Um, so yeah, I think when I was thrifting, I had like a box of shoulder pads that I would just like take out of everything. <laughs> You know, I was like, I hated like throwing things in the garbage. I'm like, maybe I'll use this for a project. So I had all these like shoulder pads like tucked away. Like <laughs> it was like never going to wear a shoulder pad, you know, as a, as a young person. I was like, this is so weird. Uh, and I just never knew why. I mean, as somebody who's not like super petite anyway, I was like, why would I want to make myself look bigger and more it's like dominant? so weird. I was, <laughs> I was telling you that I had this, I, I remember it so clearly. It was like a peach. This is so like late 80s, early 90s. It's like a peach kind of cropped sweatshirt with a mock neck collar and full mm-hmm. sleeves. This actually sounds really cool, right? As I'm describing yeah, it, I'm already. like, why do I still have this? But it had shoulder pads in it. Like, why are we putting shoulder pads in sweatshirts for, like, 12-year-olds? I know. It made zero <laughs> sense to me. Although, I will say, coming full circle, I just had a friend who um, gave me a, like, it's, it's kind of hard to explain, but it's, like, it's basically, like, a loose top, like a, like a, jacket or almost like a blazery thing but it's I made mean, it a swimwear and it was like an Oscar de la floral like fluorescent floral and it was for like older ladies who were at the beach that wanted to like cover up or whatever <laughs> um and it has shoulder pads in it and i'm like you know what i'm fucking wearing these shoulder pads and i'm like into it so i have come full circle i mean it's it's in that specific garment it looks kind of fun and just like mm-hmm. dramatic Generally speaking, I'm I'm like a no shoulder pad kind of lady. Yeah, but, me yeah. too. Me too. I mean, I will when they're like the really extreme shoulder pads that give you like a really strong architectural shape. I think mm-hmm. that that's really, really cool. And I think that's kind of how it began. But what happened right. is like mass fashion was like, well, we got to put a shoulder pad in everything <laughs> and we're not going to do it very well. And then it ends up being in peach sweatshirts. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> exactly. Like if you have a really beautiful tailored blazer and it like has a strong shoulder, that can be really like fierce looking. But like, yeah, it, it was, they were always kind of like soft <laughs> and like made out of nylon and like sad looking a little bit. And like, yeah, they were not exactly desirable for me. Yeah, and then when you would wash your clothes, which we all do, they would right. get misshapen and you'd like oh, yeah. to get dressed and try to like push them into position. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. I'm glad that there's a lot less of common. Yeah, there's a lot me of drama. Too. Just one more thing I'm to stress very- out about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't need to like that's another weird thing to be like, is this in place? Like and then of course if it's all like off, you look like really misshapen and it's not good. Um so that was like, yeah, that was like obviously mid-80s, late 80s, that was like a real hot trend. And then the other well, I will say before we get into my my hot list, um, I will say the pussy bow blouse is something else that was very iconic in the yes. 70s and early 80s. Such a I mean, I will say I still love that look. I oh I me too. Always, you know, if there's like a hot pussy blouse in like a thrift, I will snatch it up in a second. For sure. Um, I was curious a little bit about that, though, because I was like, pussy blouse. This sounds like ridiculous, this name. Like, where did this come from? Like, yes. Uh, where does that name come from? Because I feel awkward saying it. 
Yeah, I mean, we're saying, you know, we're saying pussy and everyone feels like, oh, it's like a weird vibe. Like, um, I keep thinking you know, of Serial Mom and like the pussy willows. And anyway. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so I apparently it was made famous by Coco Chanel and Yves Saint Laurent, same with, you know, some of the hot hitters that we talked about earlier. Um, and basically, I couldn't find like something su- like super definitive, but there was people talking about how it came from possibly like this which I think was more popular like back in the day, which like those images of kittens with those big bows tied around their neck, you know, like, like vintage, just like on greeting cards or wrapping paper. It was like a a really like iconic image of like a kitty with like a big bow on it around its neck. So they kind of, people were saying that it came about maybe from that. I mean, I, I didn't like, but I was like, that makes sense. Like, um, yeah, and so I don't know. That was the only thing I could really find when I did like a quick sweep to see what I could, you know, people were saying. <laughs> if if anyone is listening to this knows, please call or email me because this is one of those things that actually sometimes keeps me awake at night. I need to know. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, I will say I didn't do like uh, extensive research, but I did a quick like couple Google searches and that's the only thing that I could really find so far. Um, but I would be ab- super interested if anyone knows, yeah, the origin, the real origin of like where that came about. Um, but there's something like, you know, I think the reason why I was always drawn to those too, is there's something like feminine yet very powerful about them. You uh-huh. know, it's like, I always wanted to wear a tie, but like, I never really had any like business wearing it, like, or any reason to really wear a tie. But yeah, it was like yeah. kind of like a female tie in a way, you know, it just like there's I don't know what that is about having something tighter on your neck like that that can make you kind of feel like in charge. It's <laughs> true know, though. It's true. Yeah, yeah. And I like I would love to wear a tie, but like honestly, my boobs, it just my boobs are against it. They're like, right, no, sure. we're gonna make this tie look ridiculous. Um, so I feel like uh pussy bow blouse is like a little bit more bosom friendly. It, sure. it lays a better. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I was thinking about going back to like maybe doing some kind of like bow tie or not even a bow tie, Ooh. but like the pussy bow, like a, it's similar to a pussy bow, but like tied around your neck or it's like a bigger bow. Yeah. I've been playing around with it, but you have to uh, have the right line to like make it work. It's, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't had anywhere to go to like wear that. What am I going to do that on my Zooms? People are going to be like, Jenny, you're really stepping it up. <laughs> I come to the Zoom in like a full like underneck bow tie. Like, hey, everybody. <laughs> anyway, the one other thing I will say about this is that um, when I was just doing a quick poking around on the pussy bows is that recently they kind of came back into the spotlight when Melania was wearing one after like this, which was crazy because it was like right around the time that everything came out with Trump, when the whole like audio recording <gasps> of him That's talking about grabbing by the pussy. Right. That's which everybody right. was like... I mean, which was like a huge deal. And then she comes out and has a pussy blow blouse on and people were like, what? And everyone was like, are we being crazy? Or is this stylist like fucking with us? You know what I mean? Like, which is still out for debate. Like, but the fashion world and people were fucking talking about it. Cause it was, you know, and I don't think, Mel- I mean, I don't know. I just don't feel like Melania is going to be like witty enough, but like her stylist might've been, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think she cares. And I really don't think she's like clued into like that kind of pop culture where she's like, let me just fuck with her. But a stylist might be into that vibe. I don't know. It seemed, it was just an interesting little pop culture like tidbit to be like, huh, right after that scandal, she started wearing those kind of blouses. But yeah, that is interesting. I have kind of wondered, cause there were a couple times, like I've seen people be like, Melania is trolling us with what she's right. wearing. And I'm like, I don't know. I think her stylist is, to be honest. Sure. I thought there were times that perhaps 
Donald Trump's makeup artist was trolling <laughs> him and us at the same time. <laughs> like there were some layers of some shit going on. You're like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like Melania just wouldn't have like, that's not like her like area where she's going to shine. Like I'm going to like be like witty and, and use this like vintage retro, like retro reference of fashion. You know what I mean? I just don't think she's going that deep with it, no, but a style might be, I should actually look into like her stylist and like dig a little deeper in that. Cause I'm kind of curious about it. Yeah, but, me too. Me too. Anywho. Um, okay. So moving right along, I put together a little list of um, some like, a you know, just like some, cultural touch points along the way of like women in pop culture that sort of made an impact on us um, regarding like working careers, the workforce, etc. Um, so let's just dive right in. Cool. So I, I put this in like chronological order just because I thought it was kind of a fun way to do it. Um, first, we're starting off with Network, Faye Dunaway, 1976. Um, this movie was like, you know, like everybody loved this movie it won like oscars it was like you know people were like going crazy over it um basically like you know the general plot of it is that like it's kind of behind the scenes of like a hard-hitting network and like like a network executive and like you know this is also 76 where i think that maybe there wasn't a ton of like exposure to like how kind of crazy television the world of television was Mm -hmm. um so basically, you know, it's Faye Dunaway, just like, she always brings the fire, man. I mean, she is just like an intense woman in general. Like her <laughs> acting, her choice, her like character choices are always like over the top. Um, so this is like, you know, the fashion in this was like very real. It wasn't hammed up. It wasn't like over the top. It was just Mm-mm, like, yeah. it was a real time capsule of like classic 70s office wear. You know what I mean? Like office attire, like what people were actually wearing, which I kind of love because I hate when like people like overdo it in a way that like is not real of what people are actually wearing. So it's a lot of just like classic 70s looks, like a lot of neutrals, camel tones, which I feel like was like a 70s thing too. Um, You know, like can't like wool, like a, like a wool camel turtleneck sweater. Um, She had a few scarves and I didn't, I don't think there was any pussy bows, but there was definitely a few like scarves around the neck type of things. Mm -hmm. Um, just like very 70s color palette. And she does have this like real amazing houndstooth coat that she wears. Iconic. Totally. With like tall leather boots, like hailing a cab. You know, it's just a classic like um, 70s New York look. So that's where we started. Um, Moving along to 1980, we have 9 to 5 with Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Dolly. And this is just really like the dream team, right? I mean, mm-hmm, this is like mm-hmm. the holy trinity of uh, iconic women. Uh, women, and for anyone who has not seen this movie, because um, I, I did see a few people recently be like, "I just watched," and I was like, "What? Um, <laughs> Go watch it! Your, yeah, put on your weekend plans. This is a, this is one that holds up. It's a classic. It's such a great movie. I mm-hmm. mean, beyond the fact that there's just some great like kind of late seventies, early eighties work fashion and like it's just like three amazing women um it's really about like their you know friendship and like it so basically the general the general um plot was that it's three female secretaries who work in this larger corporation and they get it's a revenge movie they get revenge on their asshole boss (laughs) yeah it takes a turn i was shocked but i have to say it holds up you know a lot of movies of that era do not um This one, I was like, wow, it's more relevant than ever. 
Yeah, it really does hold up because you know what? It was it was really feminist at the time. Yeah. I mean, it was a feminist movie, and it, I mean they they didn't. It wasn't a ser- quote unquote serious feminist movie. It was more like a like a comedic. Um, uh, what's it called? Like, like an adventure, you know? Yeah. But it was definitely like, it was, it was all about the women and like, you know, being friends and like, kind of like women power. I mean, without being corny about it, it really was. And so I think that's why it holds up. Um, Plus it was just like, these women became, ended up, I mean, they were all kind of popular at the time, but after the, I mean, they just became like literal icons, all of them, you know? Um, I mean, I'm a huge Lily Tomlin fan. If anyone who's ever like followed any of the stuff I ever talk about, I mean, Lily Tomlin is like one of my heroes. Um, I just remember when I was young and watching her on like Sesame street and stuff. And she played um, Lilith Ann, which was that yeah. little girl. So she was a little girl. And so, so it was supposed to be like, kind of like identifying with like, I'm a little kid. And she was in this giant chair. And I just remember as a kid being like, who is this like kooky lady who's talking in all these weird voices and like wearing patchwork rompers, you know? What I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, so my not like aesthetically um so yeah i'm a huge lily tomlin fan on a side note if you haven't seen the incredible shrinking woman that is also another one i would have put it on this list but it's not super i mean it's a little bit about the workforce but not totally um so that's another amazing movie that really holds up if you haven't seen i would watch that too yeah um but anyway, so yeah, nine to five, classic. Um, definitely give that a watch. Um, moving on to 1983, we have um, Mr. Mom. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you're right. So that's got Terry Garr and Michael Keaton. Uh, basic premise: If you haven't seen this, this one might have slipped through the cracks for people that are a little younger because it wasn't He'd grown like, up. <laughs> yeah, it was like a little like the only reason I actually watched this um, because you know when I was young, like we we've said before, like we have to go, you had to like go rent movies with your parents and stuff, and uh-huh. like at the blockbuster, and so it wasn't like you could just watch a million shows like we can now and, and movies on TV. Um, so my grandmother every year would um, get buy me like a handful of uh, VHS, like the hot VHS from that year. So she, I think she like, and she really like hit some interesting points, you know, like she would definitely like, some of it was a little obscure and like, which ended up being some of the greatest movies. But, um, so this was on the list. And so it's basically, it's the classic like 1980s family. Um, there's a recession and both of them lose their, or she, I don't know if she was working, but they, they're both jobless. And so they have this like chat and they're like, well, let's just both try to find jobs and see whoever gets, whoever gets the job first is the one who goes to work. So of course, Terry Gar, the mom gets her, gets a job at like an advertising agency first. And Michael Keaton has to like put his tail between his legs and be like, all right, you know, the old switcheroo gender role kind of thing. Um, (laughs) Classic in the eighties. We loved this. Oh my God. We, we loved this. I also (laughs) was thinking about, uh, Three Men and a Baby, another swapperoo where men who were incompetent had to duct tape babies into diapers. Like, that would never happen. Totally. It's like ridiculous (laughs) premises where you're like, okay, but we love it. We love a a gender switcheroo. So this one was fun (laughs) because, you know, Terry Gar is sort of sweet. She's like very like gentle, but she's like kind of like, you know, no, she gives her sass to him and all that. And there's some interesting like, you know, um, she has a very like classic 80s, early 80s office attire, the big round Mm -hmm. glasses, which I kind of still love. Um, And it it was just sort of hammy too. It's like she works for this company called Schooner Tuna, which is just like so ridiculous, you know? Yeah, it's just like these funny, like kind of like silly skits about her, like presenting how they should do commercials and whatnot. So there's a lot of like 
hammy stuff in it um and how like you know like she's a housewife and she goes into corporate america and like speaks for all the housewives and all that kind of stuff so it's a fun one i mean it's not you know i it held up when i watched it because i just had a nostalgia about it as a kid um you know a lot of the focus is really on michael keaton um being like a stay-at-home mom so it's a lot of like you know like oh my god the washing machine overflowed again and there's pancake mix everywhere it's a little (laughs) silly and goofy but there was one scene where he makes friends with all the like local stay-at-home ladies and they go to a strip club and i think it's a chippendales i'm not sure i hope i hope it has to be what else would it be it was gonna be like an independently run strip club it's probably a chippendales um (laughs) and that scene is like ridiculous and hilarious uh just because you know chippendales um but anyway so that's a fun silly one not like a you know an exquisite piece of film but um definitely like a fun cultural touch point on some stuff mm-hmm. um and then so moving along we have we're gonna stop in 1987 this is more of like an honorable mention one just because this character really like stuck out to me um it was in a secret of my success which was also a vhs uh, gift from my grandmother um <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> she she went into some deep shit um so this one is you know michael j fox and helen slater who was is his love interest who was the was uh, in Legend of Billie Jean, another like iconic uh, 80s movie. And um, so this one was really, it, I mean, the story was mostly about Michael J. Fox. Um, and he, you know, he's a farm boy, he went to business school, was going to the big city to make it. He gets there, lives in this like rat infested apartment, and he loses his job that he had, right? I mean, the apartment is actually hilarious because it's like, I mean, it's just like comically ridiculous how small and disgusting it is. Um, but anyway, and so he ends up going to have to put his tail between his legs and go talk to his uncle, who's like a big corporate executive in the city and try to get a job. So when he goes to do that, he, he was like, fine, puts him in the mail room. He's like, whatever. And this woman, the, the boss's wife requests that he drive her out to the Hamptons, right? This is like the whole where you meet this woman. And so he, he like this whole like ridiculous scene of like him in this limo with this like sexy lady in the back. She's like putting on lipstick and that, you know, that song that everybody knows anyway. So basically he goes out to the Hamptons. She makes him come inside to like help her with some housework they go down to the pool. The ne- you know, one thing leads to another. They're banging. <laughs> they're banging in the pool house. You know, as one does. Classic, and yeah. A classic, classic move. Um, and so then her husband walks, like, ends up coming in, and he realizes that this is his aunt, and he's like, "Oh shit, aunt by marriage, but still." So I just loved her. Her like, sh- uh, like her her name was Vera Prescott in it. So she was the wife of you know, this like successful businessman, but you find out that it's really like her family that like started this business, blah, blah, blah. But I just loved how as a kid, like when I watched this when I was younger, I just loved how like fearless she was. She didn't give a fuck about a fuck about like whatever she wanted. She just did it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And she wasn't afraid of getting caught. Like I know she had money, whatever privilege, all that, of course. But as a kid, I was just like, wow, this lady is just like sexual and like doing whatever she wants and like doesn't care what anyone thinks. And she's like, and then, you know, plot twist in the end, she ends up be kind of becoming Michael J. Fox's mentor and ends up like taking down the company. So she's like a real power bitch. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, just like really comes around and is like helping everybody out and whatever. Anyways, she was my honorable mention just because I sort of loved her vibe and her whole sense of like fearless power. I feel like she had some good hats, if I'm remembering correctly. Very good hats. Yeah. She had that like um visor that was a giant brim that went all the uh, way around. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of like peach 
coral colored lipstick, I feel like. You know, that, that like 80s thing. I feel Sounds like about thing. right. Yeah. Yeah. And she had great hair. She was just like, she just had like a really powerful vibe that like shone through in like her fashion and her whole like aesthetic. Um, so yeah, she was my honorable mention. So we're staying around in 1987 for another classic. And this was Baby Boom, which was oh. like, yeah. This was like a major one that a lot of people on Facebook was like, baby boom, you know, and there's like articles that have been written about baby boom and all this stuff. Um, so if you haven't seen baby boom, just a brief, you know, kind of plot description is um, it's a tale about like a no nonsense businesswoman, Diane Keaton, um, who in quotes inherits a baby from her like long lost uncle who died, which I'm like, ew, like that <laughs> never would sure happen. that's not how it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like there's a woman that shows up they she meets her at the airport to like get her inheritance she thinks it's going to be a check and this woman's like here's baby elizabeth and she was like i don't want this baby what the fuck so that's how it starts so she gets she keeps the baby for a minute she ends up of course losing her fiance they were like that typical like 80s power couple that like you know were just like cold and like just like fear like you know just all they wanted was to just like be successful you know that, that yeah. whole like archetype is just so like ugh. um but she loses her fiance because he's like ew what is this baby doing here and she <laughs> essentially loses her job because she's like oh my god i can't do this um there is like a few problematic moments just like very obvious product like where she's interviewing nannies and there's some uh, things that made me really like turn my turn my stomach just stereotype shit that i'm like ew i don't we don't yeah, do that anymore yeah yeah um but that aside um hopefully we're all you know we live and learn and looking back i mean that's one good thing right you look back at something and you're like that's not right and that means we've learned and we've grown you yeah know? so yeah exactly um um, so anyway, but so she ends up being like, you know what, fuck it, I'm gonna pack it up and do the whole fantasy that every like urban dweller dreams of. And she's like, I'm gonna move up to Vermont and like live on this apple farm and like chill with my baby. And we're like, everyone was like, all right, have fun. So then she gets up there and it's just like, you know, the classic like breakdowns and whatever that Diane is amazing at is just like having like a fucking emotional breakdown. She's just like, that's like been one of her like <laughs> signature moves throughout the years. Um, but anyway, you know, it's just the, the general story of like a corporate, you know, animal goes soft and like moves out in the country. So it actually like is a real classic tale. And I, I sort of appreciate it for that, but it really does like highlight that, like having it all like motherhood versus the career thing. You know, and I think that's something that's like, I don't know, it just, I've always sort of resented that. Like, you either are like, like a create a power career woman, or you're a mom, you mm-hmm. know, those are like two categories, or you work really hard, or you, you're a mom. There's like, you know, this gray area has always been a little bit like, weird. And I actually started looking at like, I was the, the, the term like having it all, you know, which like this whole movie kind of is like dealing with, right? Like, can you have it all? Like, how do you have it all? And they actually came from, I believe, well, I, mean, I think second wave feminism that started, you know, the idea mm-hmm. of like having it all. And then it really solidified with this book in 1982 um, by Helen Gurley Brown, who was apparently an editor at, um, Cosmo for like 20 years. I haven't read it, but I was checking it out. And it was basically like she wrote this book called Having It All. And it basically shared her like recipe for success for like women who were like single working women, like how she, you know, like her rags to riches story. Yeah, I don't think Helen Gurley Brown even ever had children. I mean, I guess that title, when it came out, she's talking about like being a career woman, but I think that that title then morphs 
because I mean, for me now, when I think of this phrase, having it all, I think about like having a job, having a family, right? I mean, is that what you associate with having it all? I think that in the 80s, suddenly it was like, oh my God, wait a minute. Like I'm being forced as a woman, and this continues now, to choose between having a career or a family because, you know, the systems that are in place right now don't encourage that. I actually... You know, earlier this week, our water was out and we decided to splurge and spend one night in a hotel so we could take showers because it had been so long that since we had taken a shower. And there were old episodes of Law & Order on that I want to say were probably from the 90s. And there was an episode that I totally have seen before where a baby dies, they put the nanny on trial. Spoiler, the nanny didn't do it, uh, but you don't find that out until the end. (laughs) And the nanny's defense lawyer calls the mother of this child onto the stand and basically shames her and gets the case basically dismissed because she's so busy with her career that she neglects her child. And I was like, what the fuck? But that is like, that was the mindset and continues to be, to be honest, that we're supposed to try to have it all, like have everything, follow all of our dreams, have a career, have kids, all of that. But like, it's just, it, it doesn't work and not because yeah. it can't because right. we're not set up for success there. And I, uh, right. I mean, I think that the pandemic reinforced that for a lot of millennials who hadn't seen um, this movie, <laughs> you <Yeah>, know, totally. <laughs> this very important movie. <laughs> this very important cultural touchstone. <laughs> yeah, no, I, mean, I just, I guess it's like for me as somebody who, you know, I've, I've had, um, I've worked in a variety of creative careers. I mean, not, I hate even using the word career. It just sounds so like important and fancy. I mean, I just, I've done a lot of creative things in my life, but I never was like one of those like career girls, you know, that's just like working for the bigger companies, like rising up. I just never did that. And I also am somebody who chose not to have children, you know, so this idea of like, you know, having it all, or also just like women's categories. It's like, you're either like you work a lot or you wanted a family. I mean, that seemed to be like the options, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, if I chose, you know, I'm happen to be in a heterosexual relationship where it would be very easy for me just like logistically to have a baby in some sense. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, Mm -hmm. I chose not to do that. And then, and then I also chose not to go in this like really kind of like how high powered, like career that rules my life direction as well. So it's like for people who didn't choose either one of these paths, that seems to be the only path that like women kind of need to define themselves by. Then it leaves you in a place where like, okay, well, what's up with people like me? (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean? I chose not to have a, a child, and I also chose not to like have a career that totally defined my life in a lot of ways. I can't remember what movie it was, but I was listening to uh, How Did This Get Made, which is about like bad movies. And it's really hilarious. I can't recommend it mm. enough. And they were talking about a specific film where like there was a quirky woman who neither had a career nor children. She's just quirky, and she lived right. on a houseboat and. The conversation was like, in the 80s, whenever a woman didn't have a career or children, in movies like that, they would be like, she's wild. She is really horny and likes young men (laughs) and lives on a houseboat and wears like hot pink clothing and lots of makeup. I mean, that's like ideal for me, to be quite honest. (laughs) (laughs) That's aspirational for me, but... (laughs) 
<laughs> no, but you're to your right. It was like the the kooky aunt. Yeah, yeah. And they were like spinsters or whatever. But then it like evolved to this like, oh, you made these choices. You must be a real weirdo and like stepping yeah. outside of the norms kind of thing. Yeah. I remember there was this episode of The Brady Bunch, which I was obsessed with watching in reruns while I was a child. And like I lo- – that was – the show was like my happy place. I would watch it at my grandma's. And uh, there was an episode that is iconic to me as the kooky aunt in everyone's life. Um, yeah. <laughs> where their aunt comes to visit and she travels all around the world and she's glamorous and worldly and has beautiful bohemian clothing that she's bought in all of her travels. And they're all like really blown away and enamored with her. And the mom, Mrs. Brady, is really bummed out and jealous. The kids are like, mom, why can't you be more like our aunt? Like there's that kind right. of tension and then it turns out like uh, there's a reveal at some point where it's like oh but she's so sad and lonely because right, she doesn't course. have children or a family and like well, so have, see, have to like demonize her a little bit right otherwise yeah. it's like that sounds great you get to travel you get to like expose fashion and culture and all these things oh but she's just real lonely and sad really when it comes yeah to exactly right. exactly yeah. Yeah, well, that's what I, I mean. That's the same thing. It's like, you know, these categories that if you don't fit, people are just like, oh, we don't know what to do with you. You know, it's like, oh, I guess you're just like a sad, lonely spinster or whatever. Um, yeah, so it was interesting. So, yeah, I mean, Baby Boom definitely like brought up a lot of those kind of like, you know, th- the career versus mom, all those kind of things. And essentially is like, you know, it's one of the more iconic when people, I mean, people definitely mentioned Baby Boom when I was asking people about this. And so, uh, friends of mine. So I think this is kind of the one, because it's literally her leaving her job and becoming a mom. It became like one of the more f- famous movies about this kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so moving along to 1988, Another classic that I loved, which might have slipped through the cracks for some people, was Big Business um, with Ben Midler. And Lil- yes. Got to get my Lily Tomlin in there again. Um, so brief uh, plot point on this one. It was basically two sets of twins um, that were born in a small classic. town. Classic. all the time, yeah. yeah. So it was a wealthy family from the city that happened to be traveling to the country. She goes into labor, and they're like, oh, shit, now we got to go to this, you know, little country um, hospital and have our babies. Of course, at the same time, there was, like, a country couple that came in also having babies. Shocker, <laughs> they're both having twins. Like, what are the, you know, what are the odds? So they go in, they're having the babies, you know, um, they're in this, like, this nurse who's, like, older and, like, kooky, and she's forgetful. She doesn't know what's going on. She's like, <laughs> you know, like that whole family thing. Um, so the twins were born, and surprise, one of them was switched. So they were like switched to birth. Another, you know, we love a switch back to our switcheroos. We love a switcheroo. So basically, um, there's a Lily Tomlin and a Bette Midler, and each set of twins. One uh-huh. set goes to the country, one set goes back to the city, right? So it's sort of like this, like, a, like, socioeconomic experiment where it's like if you're if you're of rich stock do you like when you go to the country do you feel out of place or vice versa you know it's like that whole thing um and so basically yeah it's actually a i really enjoyed this movie it's (laughs) super ridiculous it's very like really a real comedy like you know just like lots of like silly situations and whatnot um but i love bet midler and i love lily tomlin and they're both great in it um and the bet midler from the city who's like a power bitch has some great ridiculous outfits yeah and there's actually a lot of fashion in it because 
that really defines like the characters, you know, because there's two sets of twins, right? So like they have to style each Bette Midler very differently and Lily Tomlin. So one, I think my favorite is the Lily Tomlin that is from the country and grew up there. Um, and that, that was, and she was originally, that's her, her actual parents. Um, she is dressed like, I mean, it's just, so, she has like a lot of like seventies polyester on and she's dressed like in pink and a lot of like kooky, like she wears white gloves and she like, she's just like a real nut. She's kind of like, she's, she's she comes to the, the, to the city to like save Jupiter hollow, the, like the factory in her town. And I love her whole aesthetic. Cause it's just like, I don't know. There's something about it that just really like hits for me. Did you ever watch it as a kid or no? Oh, yeah. I remember this movie being really hilarious. Also rented, you know, like when you would rent a movie, typically you'd have it for a couple days. And so you'd try to watch it as many times as possible. And I remember really working hard to see this movie as many times. Like it was really funny. And the clothes are super over the top and really bright. So they're staying at the plaza. um, And there's even a shop in the plaza in the movie that has, that's like a boutique. So there's even like scenes where they're going in and buying new clothes and stuff like that. So there's, there's a lot of like interesting, fun, silly, like late eighties fashion happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was, a, and this was a good, I think it's, I mean, it's a silly movie. You're not, again, not like a serious film that you're going to watch. Yeah, and you're like, it's- wow. <laughs> but if you're into that kind of like, kind of like cheeky stuff, it's, I think it holds up. I think it's great. Yeah, yeah. And it's cool because, like, I feel like at this time you didn't see a lot of comedies where the two main characters, well, I guess there are four really because there's two other yeah. twins, are women. Like, that's yeah. just like a rare thing at this time. Yeah. Even and now, like, I guess. You know? They're powerhouses, those two. I mean, yeah. they're both like very like physical actors as well. So it's like, it's funny, but it's like physically funny too. It's just a lot of like, um, yeah, I, I just thought it was great. Um, so I definitely would recommend that. Um, we're going to stay moving on. We're going to stay in 1988 for the classic, wor- you know, working girl. Oh um, God. Yeah. The scene in the very beginning that is so iconic to me is just like the wall of women commuting to work in their yep. like business clothes and mm-hmm. their white, like Reebok high tops. Yeah. Totally. <clears throat> iconic. I mean, that reminds me of growing up with like my aunt worked in the city and she lived in Jersey. And so, and she always had that, like that hose that was like a shade too dark. Mm-hmm. You know, we were Greek. So she probably like thought she needed to go for like the Mediterranean skin tone or whatever the hell it was. <laughs> it, was, like, I was like, it was always like a little dark and she have those squishy, like, like white Reeboks and everyone like wore those to work. And that was the thing. Then you changed to your pumps and you got to work. It was such a mm-hmm. like thing that so many women did. And I, you know, I, I've seen Working Girl a couple times. I haven't watched it in a couple years, but I do feel like this one was really um, more on like the empowerment of like, mm-hmm. there, there feels like a difference between some of these other like earlier movies of like women in the workplace. Like there's something like, I don't know, that felt like kind of empowering about it. Um, I, be- I feel like Joan C- Cusack really like stole the show for me. Oh my gosh, for sure. I j- actually just rewatched it a couple years ago. It was just like on my mind. Um, yeah. And I was like, because I was very young when I saw this film. Yeah. Once again, another thing that we rented, my mom definitely picked it out. This would not have been a movie that I would have probably chosen because it's a lot, right. it's not funny. It's adult. Yeah. It's more like serious. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I will say that Joan Cusack was the highlight for me, for sure. Yeah. Um, I felt like, I mean, I think it says interesting things actually about class. And how that dictates kind of the entire path of our lives um, unfairly. And I actually what I thought was interesting is I think a lot of people would look at 
working girl and say, oh, but things have changed so much. Just because you grew up blue collar doesn't right. mean that you have to be the secretary. You could also be the executive. And I would say right. that that's actually just not true. That's yeah. like some American dream thinking. And the reality is that like, I've seen that play out in front of me time and time again. Like it is unfortunately like being born in a higher socioeconomic level sets you up for the executive yeah. job because you've got connections, your parents know people, you go to a fancier school, you just have more opportunities. Um, totally. So that part of it, I was like, yeah, I feel this. Yeah. And, and even on that sense, it's like, you know, they're both from Staten Island and it's like, if you don't know the New York area, it's sort of like in that time frame too, it was like stat, it was like the Staten Island girl who had like the really thick accent and the big hair and the like the hair. You know, oh my God. Slightly less sophisticated. This is like the, what they're giving you, you know? And it's mm-hmm. like, so that all feeds into what you're talking about too. It's like, oh, how could the girl from Staten Island who has the thick accent, the big hair, you know, is not like looked at as like, you know, refined or whatever. Yeah, like, yeah. That, that whole classist thing. I mean, it's definitely like a big part of this. And Sigourney Weaver is like the boss who's like the one who probably went to like Yale and has like plays tennis on the weekends. She, I think she went on a ski trip when this was like during the, this film. She That was the whole thing. So yes, she like, yes. Oh my God. I have like, let me tell you, I have so many f- feelings about skiing. Wait, have you ever gone skiing? Yes. Well, okay. I only because I grew up, I mean, I, I grew up in, a, in an area where in Connecticut where like everyone was like wealthy around me and my parents mm-hmm. were like, you know, just like kind of happened to like make it on their own kind of thing. We didn't come from like family wealth. And so all these people were like skiing. And so my parents were like, all right, go on a ski. T-. I was like, sure. And then when you're young, you're like, whatever, I'll do that. I, it was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, holy shit, I only went with a friends a couple times because I didn't, you know, my parents didn't ski. We didn't, like, <laughs> know what yeah, that was. Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, it's like an expensive hobby. Right. Yes. And where I grew up in Pennsylvania, like, people don't go skiing. It's very yeah. rural, very, like, working class. Like, the people that we thought were rich when I was a kid were just, like, middle class, real talk. Right. Um, and so, like, <laughs> skiing is not something that happens. We have, like, a ski club at school. We didn't go on school ski trips, that kind of stuff. Right. And I never really thought about skiing as I got into adulthood. Like, I was like, uh, it sounds dangerous. And, like, I don't really like to be cold, so I'll probably never get into it. <laughs> um, I also don't have the resources to get to a mountain and learn how to ski. Yeah. Um, but at my last job there was this obsession that we should be buying ski clothing because skiing was like, they were in like so many people want to go skiing. And I was like, I don't, I don't think that's true. I think you guys are all being rich right now because yeah, this is a rich moment. Yeah. I have never, I mean, all my friends are really cool, interesting people and not one of them ever has said <laughs> we should go skiing. Totally. It's a regional thing as well, because I grew yeah. up in New England and even like back then, I mean, it was a very wealthy area. Um, but again, like I said, my parent, my mom's family was Greek immigrants. My dad grew up in the South, like, you know, not wealthy and just kind of like happened to make it and like get a good job and whatever, you know? And he, so it was like, the, I think that's like a regional thing. I also think it's like a, like, there's a lot of like old school, old money that would ski. Yeah. Yeah, well, and that I was think, that. That was who I worked with. It was like yeah. the first time I'd worked kind of exclusively with people who came from like old money. Yeah, like it was weird. I mean, that's definitely an old, like a New England old money. Or if you're out west, 
there, yeah. you know, there's certain areas there people ski. But you're right. It, it's something that's it, it like like other sports like that. Like it does feel sort of like exclusive because it's not. It's something you have to have. You can't just like pick up a basketball and go to a local court. You know what I mean? You have to like have the gear, get to the place that specifically does the thing, buy the passes, and not to mention it's very like rigorous. I mean, I was an athlete in high school and was in like amazing shape and worked out like three hours a day. And I would go skiing and be like, holy shit. Like my legs are like jello. You know what I mean? Like for the like, I mean, it's not for like a casual person who's like, I'm going to just like mess around. You have to be like in shape to do that be quite honest yeah yeah and like whereas you could be like i'm gonna go to the roller skating rink and try roller skating i've never done it before and you'd it'd probably work out fine you can't just be like i'm gonna go skiing i've never done it before i'm just gonna go do it like you need (laughs) to take lessons you need to rent equipment you need special clothing i mean it's like it there's a reason why a lot of lower income people don't go skiing um and i think i love that in this movie skiing is shown as this class related activity. I, I love that. Um, maybe that was like my major takeaway from it when I watched it as a kid where I was like, ah, that's why I've never been skiing. Um, I don't know. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of boundaries to, um, overcome before you get to be able to even try to do that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So before we totally go off the rails on like other tangents, like we love to do the next movie, we're in 1991. So we're entering the nineties now. Um, and that was don't tell mom, the babysitter's dead. Uh, <gasps> Applegate. And this one was like one of my faves. Cause like 91, I was like, I mean, I'm not gonna, you know, I was definitely like a teen and I just thought it was like the ultimate, like, teenage fantasy where like your mom goes away i mean not the babysitter part but like (laughs) you're sort of like free (laughs) for the summer to do whatever you want and i will say that christina applegate's style in this like still holds up for me i mean she was like yeah yeah she was cool as shit and it still looks cool as shit to me you know what i mean like even though like trends have changed i think we've kind of almost come back around to that time anyway um but she looks hot and she still looks really hot in it so i was like you know into that did you did you love this movie as well oh my god who didn't right this was like iconic and she's like wants to be a fashion designer you know yeah (laughs) all of the like cool stuff um and there's that classic line that we all love um from i mean at least i did where she goes you know she goes basically the the premise you know is like she has to go and like get a job because she has to like make enough money to survive for the summer and she gets ended up like kind of working her way into this like office job that she's not qualified for and (laughs) her boss who's like also like cool as hell i mean she's like one of those like women that i was like another woman who's like in control power bitch you know like uh-huh just i loved her whole vibe um because she was also really sweet to her you know what i mean and i love seeing like women being nice to women <laughs> it's nice it's a nice reinforcement <laughs> yeah for um, real <laughs> you know of, like not treating her like total garbage and like being yeah. like a nice boss it's like refreshing to see <laughs> um, yeah. you know what i mean like like hey honey you got this like being supportive like oh my god what a novel concept <laughs> Um, <laughs> you know, uh, oh my god, people actually like to work for you if you're like not a total piece of shit to them. What? Um, crazy. She she had that thing with her. She's like, listen, this is my one rule. You know, when any when I ask you anything, when we're in front of other people in the office, you always say, "I'm right on top of that, Rose." I say that to David sometimes <laughs> when we're in the house. I'm like, "I'm right on top of that, Rose," because he'll like start barking orders or something. Uh, but that was like the famous <laughs> quote from that, uh, which was cute. But 
Yeah. And then the end, I mean, if you haven't seen it, I don't want to give too much away, but the end with the fashion show, I mean, it was just so many fun fashion moments uh, and just like pop culture moments in that movie Um, from even from her brother, who's like a total deadhead kind of like loser, um, (laughs) his whole vibe. I mean, there's just some really good like early 90s moments in that. Yeah, it's great. It holds up. I, I recommend Yes, for sure. And that, so that concludes, we're going to end in early nineties for my movies. Um, and then, you know, I was just like, I'm not going to get totally into a lot of these, but these are just ones that people are also interested in like poking back at some different stuff. Um, I have to just mention dynasty Joan Collins. Did you watch it? I watched it as an adult a couple years ago. Dustin and I watched okay. all of it. It's, Oh wow. It's both terrible and amazing. Yeah. The clothing, the cat fights, um yes it's preposterous there's an alien abduction oh wow okay <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm down i'm gonna do it <laughs> um taking some weird twists yeah it's like soap opera to the max like all the weird shit so yeah i mean a lot i mean she i even knew i didn't watch dynasty uh, you know growing up or anything but um joan collins and that her suit i mean if you ever look up power suit she's like one of the fr- that character is like one of the first things that pops up um so i think her her wardrobe was pretty sick in that um another one that i did watch and i kind of dipped a little bit it's not like streaming anywhere but i, I watched a couple of clips on youtube just because i was like what's this hold up like which was moonlighting um yeah. which sybil shepherd and um uh, uh bruce willis and it's funny like it's funny when i think about some of these older shows and movies like what it sticks in my head about it and then when i rewatch it i'm like oh like you know totally different perspective but uh-huh. i remember like having that on i don't know why I, I watched some like weird adulty stuff like why would i watch moonlight it's like such an adult show but um again back when there was television you kind of like watched whatever was available yeah, you know what i mean yeah yeah, and I just remember like Sybil Shepherd being in a lot of like drapey pink silk in my mind. You know, yes. like that's what I all I remember. And feeling like kind of like just glamour. And that's kind of what it I mean, basically it's like she's this rich lady, you know, another we love like, you know, highlighting rich people. Um, another rich lady <laughs> who <laughs> who like ha- you know was a model and she had this whole life and she ends up losing all of her money because like there was like some like scammy accountant who like stole all her money or something along those lines. And so all she has left is like this detective agency or something that she had like put money into or I don't know. So which Bruce Willis works for. So she ends up like having this real like love hate relationship with Bruce Willis. And the whole show is basically about their sexual tension, to be quite honest. Um, (laughs) Yes. Yes. You know, it's like her being like a pretty little princess and like, like covered in silk. And he's like, come on, you know, it's like that the whole time. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I will say there is, I I should just check her name. Um, There's his assistant um, is an amazing character actor. I'm going to look up her, um, her name, but she has like one of those faces that she's been in a lot of stuff. She, and she has like, I think when I looked her up, she had like a peach, very eighties, like peach suit. I'll find it and, um, and put it up. And then there was who's the boss. And I also oh wanted God. to mention that because another switcher, we love, again, we love a switcheroo. <laughs> love so it. it's like, <laughs> love a switcheroo. Moral of the story of this whole segment is that we love the gender switcheroo, which apparently <laughs> is to like humiliate men into femininity. I don't really know. It's complicated. I don't get it either. It's weird. It's, it's super weird. It is weird. I think that was the only way for us to like introduce, instead of being like, oh, this guy happens to be a stay-at-home dad or whatever. No big deal. We had to like make it a thing. So like it would be acceptable, you know, it's a little silly, but anyway, so who's the boss was like, um, 
it was a, a it was a story about a, a woman and her son who basically have a housekeeper that like s- lives with them. That's a man. With his daughter. Yeah, it's a man. Tony it's Danza. Weird. I'm not sorry. Not Tony. Is it Tony Danza? Yeah, it's Tony Danza. And I yeah. say, is there sexual tension? Oh yeah, for sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so Tony Danza has his daughter. Is what's her name? Alyssa um, Milano. Alyssa Milano. So those two move in with Judith Light, who is a vision, who I'm obsessed with. Oh, um, her hair and her son. Yeah, her hair is amazing. Her son. And so the, and then her mom lives with them. Mona. Mona. She's like really the star of the show. To be oh, honest. for sure. Um, for sure. And she's like, when I loved her, as one of my girlfriends said, she was just so horny all the time. She was really <laughs> horny. Like, <laughs> and I love that. She was like, old, I mean, quote unquote older. She was probably looking back now, what, she was late 50s? Or at, least, maybe most. at most. At yeah. most. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so she was just like the, like the grandma who's always like funny and horny and they probably drink. <laughs> I feel like, she was like yeah. that character. Definitely, um, definitely. But and then and so Judith Light in that she is like, but the the kind of working part of that is that she is like a high powered New York executive. They live out in like Connecticut, I think. Um. So and actually, side note, funny little story. I am obsessed with Judith Light, and so especially just how she's progressed through the years. And uh, a good friend of mine is as well. So much so that she hired an airbrush artist um, to airbrush her a t-shirt and I'll post this on my stories link because you guys got to check this out. Um, she had she uh, hired this artist to airbrush a giant picture of 80s era Judith Light like with the hair and everything and then it just says I've seen the light on it. <gasps> it's like the most amazing shirt I've ever seen in my entire life. Oh my <laughs> god. I can't wait to see it. <laughs> yeah, it's really a gem. So Shout out to Judith Light. We love her. She's a huge fan. Moving on to 1986 to 93, we have Designing Women, which you know how I feel about that. I've talked about that on the pod before. Uh, I did a full rewatch not that long ago and very problematic for me. Like a lot of just like very problematic um, (laughs) plot points. Um, The one thing I will say about that, which was very revolutionary at the time, was that it was basically about a bunch of single women Uh that were hanging out together together they own their own business they were all like you know independent and so that part of it i did appreciate and i think that that was like a really kind of big not especially in like you know the mid 80s people were like oh it was like kind of a big deal that all these women were just like you know doing it on their own and whatever and they were very supportive of each other and i, and I do love that part about it but there's some real real racism and problematic shit that like happened throughout it that was supposed to be funny, but it's just really not, you know? Yeah. The couple other last little ones that I, I didn't watch, but I had a few people talk about Murphy Brown. Yes. Iconic. Um, did you watch Murphy Brown? I mean, I was so young. Like, yeah. I don't think I remember the thing about her is that she had a new assistant in every episode. Right. So she was a bad oh. boss. <laughs> oh, another bad boss. Okay. A girl boss, I guess. Girl. Yeah. Um, but I remember there was a scandal. Uh, scandal is not the right term either. Dan Quayle cited Murphy Brown in a speech because she mm-hmm. had a child without being married. And he was like, you know, Murphy Brown is destroying family values. Oh, shit. Okay, right. Iconic. I don't right. know if the show holds up, though, but I remember yeah, that. I was young at the time, too, but I don't even really remember it being on that much in the background of my household. But I do think it was one of those like shows that was interesting just because it was like, again, like a, a female lead. She was seemed a little bit to be pr- like a, a difficult character, which mm-hmm. you can go either way on and be like, is that annoying that they're making the woman be like the bitch? Or is it like cool that she like 
can do whatever she wants and be nasty and still be successful. I don't know. Totally. Um, I could see both sides. Um, right. Yeah. I feel like it must have been on at the same time as something else that my family preferred to watch. Totally. Yeah. Whatever that might have been. Um, right. Because I would only see it here and there. Yeah, me too. I, I think I just like caught glimpses. The fashion is very conservative. It's just like real like late 80s, 90s suits and stuff like that. So it wasn't like super exciting for me on the fashion tip, but I did have some people be like, oh, I remember that show, da, 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 you know, and I was like, all right. And then lastly, my, you know, honorable mention, because again, wasn't really focused on the working world, but was Claire Huxtable. <gasps> yeah. Obviously the Cosby show is, you know, <laughs> we don't yeah. even need to get into it. I mean, it's, 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 there's issues now with Cosby, of course, like whatever, all the shit that's happened. But I did love that she was like, I mean, that whole like structure of like this, like they lived in like Brooklyn Heights, which was like a beautiful part of Brooklyn. And I was always like, Ooh, I want to go there. And she was a lawyer. <laughs> And she worked full time. He was, you know, the doc- he was a doctor, right, on that show? Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. he was the OBGYN, which oh my god makes my skin crawl now. <laughs> oh my god, dude! I didn't even th- I didn't even think about that. I don't. I think I even really remembered what he oh, was. I knew he was, he was always like, delivering oh. babies. Yeah, that was like oh, the joke. Right. Oh. God, what a nightmare that whole situation. Yeah. I mean, just horrible. I did love Claire Huxtable. I always thought she was like a really professional lady and she like was a good mom and she was tough but sweet. You know, there was something about her. I love the balance of like how they portrayed her as a character. Yes. And that's what I got for you guys. I did want to ask you one question that I thought about while I was doing this. What's your ideal like power suit, power outfit if you were to like like go on an important meeting or something like that? Like what's something that you... Like your go-tos of things that you like to wear when it makes you feel like powerful or important or whatever. Wow. That is a really good question. So I work in fashion or have worked in fashion, which means I don't have to wear a suit, right? Right. I was thinking as you were talking, I was like, have I ever worn a like suit? And I can only think of one time and it was in ninth grade and I was in a beauty pageant. Oh, wow. And for the interview portion, you had to wear a business suit. And my mom took me to Burlington Coat Factory. Well, probably Uh my grandma took me to Burlington Coat Factory. And I wore a beige suit. I got to find photos. Um, What a crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I've never actually worn a suit other than that. But I was thinking like, wow, that's so interesting. Um, I have, this is so random, but I really like a very strange, like architectural avant-garde kind of cocoon dress mm-hmm. for job interviewing because I feel like it's modest enough. Sure. Not that that should matter, right? right. Um, but it also can like with the right accessories and like a crazy shoe looks really like curated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Totally. Um, so I love that kind of stuff. I mean, in my usual day-to-day life, I wear a lot of print and whatnot mm-hmm. um, and, cr- and just like, you know, I'm very cottage court IRL, but I also yep. am really into strange avant-garde silhouettes. So my closet is kind of like a mix. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I generally like mentally am like, oh no, solids for job interviews. Not that mm-hmm. anyone's ever told me either way that that's right or wrong. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, cause I was thinking about this for myself too. And I'm similarly, like I didn't really have to wear, even when I was working in more like traditional office setting and like interior design and stuff like that, I never had to wear like a proper suit. My mom did get me a suit like, I think when I graduated from college, she was like, we should get you a suit for, you know, I don't know what the fuck. <laughs> for grown-up yeah, grown up. Yeah. And I bought a very 90s, I think it was like, I mean, I even want to say it was almost like a light blue, which is like mortifying for me to think about now. Whoa. Yeah, I, gosh, I, I, I don't even know if I have photos of it, but it was, I think it was like 
like some kind of blue situation. I honestly may have worn it once in my life and then never wore it again. Um, but for me, I was thinking about this too. Cause I was like, what would I wear as like, and you know, I mean, like really when it comes down to it, I'm a print girl, you know? And I feel like mm-hmm. powerful, like when I need to like really come like as my best fashion self and like, it's usually like a printed jacket. <laughs> Surprise. I make those. Um, so it's like, you know, obviously like something that's like a, such a staple for me, but I feel very powerful in like something that has like a strong print. Cause people always come up to me and they're like, Oh wow. Like I love that. It just makes me feel like confident somehow, you know, in like a real strong, like structured jacket with a print. Have you ever worn pantyhose for work? <laughs> um, I've worn panty. Let me try to think. I've, you know, I've worn, I've sure worn pantyhose, but I don't think it was for work. No, because I've always, I mean, when I, my first job was in the city, I was working at a trend, like a art storage and moving company. And I basically just could kind of wear anything as long as I didn't look like, you know, I had to pull myself together, but I never had a job where I had to wear pantyhose, but I do remember I hated wearing tights and like pantyhose growing up to like, you know, like a wedding or, you know, like things or whatever. Cause I'm somebody who always was like a little bit chunkier in the middle. And that's like with tights have gotten better over the years, but like pulling that up and just being so like snug in that area made me feel so bummed out. (laughs) So I always like kind of, when I got to be old enough, I always wanted to wear jeans because I hated wearing like tights. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, even the phrase pantyhose gives me anxiety. I remember also like, I've never had to wear it for work, but uh, I would have to wear it for like special occasions, you know, and yeah. I would get a run in them instantly because yeah. I'm clumsy and they would always fall down Ugh, and the worst. They'd suck. And my mom would make me wear underwear over them to hold them up. Oh so I'd be God. like really, really cozy in the groin area, <laughs> you know? Um, I don't know what's not, worse, not good. super tight or them falling. They're both horrible. I think back to a, a world that I didn't live in where you would have to wear pantyhose and pumps every day. And oh my God. I am just so, I'm just so glad that we were born <sighs> later and we don't have to. <laughs> yeah, for real. For real. Well, thank you so much, Jenny. This was so fun. Yes, always. Thank you, Jenny, for making me nostalgic for the video store. Does everyone else remember the very specific smell of them, whether it was Blockbuster or a locally owned version? They all kind of had the same smell. It was sort of like plastic, Twizzlers, and something else. Something that was just maybe the pheromones we give off when we're trying to find the right movie for the weekend or the date or whatever we're up to. (sighs) Wow, I haven't been to a video store for so, so long. I'm sure none of you have. Anyway, be sure to check out Jenny's Instagram. That's at Late to the Party People so you can see all of these stylish working women. I have to tell you, I pictured all of these different characters wearing dumpy, ill-fitting gray blazers. I think that's just how I remember this era. Except for Claire Huxtable, of course, who was always super styling, and I was very aware of that as a kid. But after some Googling of all the movies we and television characters we talked about in this conversation, I have to tell you, there are some iconic looks and some really well-fitting business clothes. It almost almost makes me want a suit of my own. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine if I came downstairs wearing a suit, Dustin would probably faint. Anyway, 
Think of all the pantyhose that was worn in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, it's nylon, so it's not biodegradable. Not that anybody knew that at the time. Oh, pantyhose. Raise your hand if you've ever unsuccessfully tried to stop a run in your stockings with some nail polish. Now, raise both hands if you successfully stopped a run in your stockings with nail polish because I want to know you and I want to know your ways. You know, you've obviously got the touch and I want to know more about it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts if that's where you listen. And of course, tell your friends. If you want to support my work here on Close Horse, please consider Patreon. You can find out more info at patreon.com slash podcast or send a direct donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. And don't forget to check out my other podcast, The Department. This week's episode is a dissection of the term basic, which spoiler, I hate that term. It was fun to break it down. Go check that out. And lastly, but most importantly, Thanks to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Today's his birthday, and I'm so glad he was born. Bye.